Just mail me out to Disneyland. Shoot me there by rubber band. I really want to go and I don't care how I get there. Good morning, adventurers, and welcome to the wonderful worlds of DisneyCast. I am Danielle, and I will be your guide as we explore the rich history of the Disney theme parks. In this podcast, we'll be looking into the inspiration behind the parks, as well as all the development and little bits and pieces that have gone into making them the magical places that we know today. And what better place to kick it all off than with the opening of Disneyland in 1955. Disneyland opened its gates in July of 1955. It actually had two opening days. The first was an international press preview held on Sunday the 17th, followed by the public opening on Monday the 18th. The first day of opening was supposed to be a closed event, with some 11,000 special invitations sent out to dignitaries, studio employees, celebrities, the press, as well as the park's financial backers. Among these guests were a real who's who of the 1950s. Musicians Frank Sinatra and Jamie Davis Jr. were there, as well as actors like Charleston Heston, Maureen O'Hare, Debbie Reynolds, Kirk Douglas, and comedian Jerry Lewis. The gates were set to open at 2.30pm, and invited guests received colour-coded tickets with staggered entrance times. Silver tickets were for 2.30pm, green tickets for 5.30pm, and white tickets for after 6pm. But by early afternoon, tens of thousands of visitors were already lined up outside the park, and had backed up traffic for miles around. Disney staff were confronted with far more than the 11,000 guests they were expecting. Not only had invited guests chosen to ignore the times on their ticket, but counterfeit ticket holders had also turned up. Not just a few of them either, but more than 10,000 of them. It turns out these fake tickets had turned up on the black market in the lead up to the event, selling for around $15 each. This is the equivalent of around $140 US today, and would have been 15 times the entrance cost at the time. One of the theories is that someone in the Disney supply chain had printed double the number of tickets as the counterfeit ones were indistinguishable from the official ones. Disney executive Card Walker later commented that he still has no idea how this happened. Regardless of the how, the official entrance count on the day was a staggering 28,154, which doesn't include the large number of fence jumpers who had snuck their way into the park. In the end, it's estimated up to 30,000 people were in attendance on the 17th way more than the untested park had any chance of accommodating. Unfortunately, this wasn't Disneyland's only problem. The park was only two-thirds complete at the time of opening. A number of rides including Dumbo, Peter Pan and Casey Jr.'s Circus Train were not operational and large areas of Tomorrowland had to be disguised behind bunting and balloons to hide their unfinished state. The night before opening, the asphalt on Main Street was only just being laid and a team of workers ended up having to install the huge African elephant on the Jungle Cruise in complete darkness after the power was accidentally cut during the night. Then the following morning, staff were still working hard applying paint to the buildings and attractions. The landscapers who had run out of plants resorted to giving the already present weeds labels with whimsical sounding Latin names, and senior staff members took to putting up joke coming soon signs bearing their own names in the windows of vacant shops on Main Street. A lot of these problems probably would have been fine under normal circumstances, but between the unexpected crowds and the record-breaking heat, the day ended up being one disaster after another. Walt, who had spent the night at the park getting ready for the opening, found himself stuck in his apartment above the Main Street firehouse. During the night, the tacky paint had sealed the door shut. He ended up having to call maintenance crew to free himself before rushing over to Town Square for the opening day events. While staff rushed around the park putting on last-minute details, the lines of eager guests had begun to wrap around the park's exterior. Many guests waited several hours to get into the park, 
and when they finally did, they found it packed with people. Nine-year-old Jonathan Carr, who had attended the opening day with his family, recorded the events in a journal he kept for a school report. He recalled that anywhere you could sit was taken. Rides had long lines, stores were filled. To me, it was like a mall parking lot during Christmas. Every space is filled, and there are endless cars either idling and waiting or circling around and hoping. As guests made their way down Main Street, they soon found the triple-figure temperatures had turned the freshly laid asphalt into a soft, sticky state, trapping the heels of ladies as they walked. In an attempt to apologise to the now de-shoed guests, staff offered them free moccasins, which were the only adult-sized shoes available on the premises. Elsewhere in the park, the free rides were quickly growing long lines, and this wasn't just limited to the working ones. Cara and his father saw people standing in line for closed rides. His father noted in the journal that some families believed the staff were saying they were closed just to get rid of the long lines, but those particular rides had never been mentioned as being open on the day. I doubt the sentiment would have been helped by the closure of all attractions at 4pm in order for them to be officially reopened after Walt's dedication of each land on the live Dateline Disneyland broadcast. By midday, the large number of customers had completely cleared out the park's stock of food and beverages. Car tells in an interview, My mother had a box of crackers. She always brought them in some peanut butter in case we got hungry. When there was no food, we all had some in the park. My father wrote down, we asked several Disney employees, but they said they had run out. While we were eating crackers on a bench, some parents who had no food offered money to my mother for the remaining crackers. It wasn't a single parent, several asked. I'd say at least six. Even more asked where we had found the food. They were getting desperate. He also notes the staff resorted to selling ingredients when their stocks ran out. I wrote down, I saw two boys drink syrup. My mother said I couldn't do that. What I remember is that a store sold flavored syrup, like an old candy store. They ran out of candy and the parents could only buy that for their children. You didn't drink syrup or ingredients like that at the time, unless something was wrong. It would be like drinking maple syrup from the bottle, but I saw it happen. The shortage of beverages was especially problematic as a last minute plumber's strike had forced Walt to choose between either working restrooms or working water fountains. Having functional restrooms was obviously the right decision, but it left overheated guests frustrated at the lack of drinking water. And that wasn't to say the restroom situation was much better. While they were operational, the number of installed restrooms had not accounted for the level of demand, and there are accounts of both children and adults relieving themselves in any private spot they could find. My father wrote down Main Street. The restroom lines are so long that there is another line for a new restroom park goers had created behind the official restroom. As the day progressed, the strain of endless crowds and the heat meant that just about every ride in the park broke at one point or another. The only attraction to come out unscathed was the Jungle Cruise, though Carr remembers that it was completely packed and at least one guest fell overboard during the ride. The park's mechanic really had his work cut out for him. Faced with long lines of impatient guests and malfunctioning attractions, he was forced to rush out to a local army surplus store for spare parts. He was doing repairs on rides while people stood in line. The dark rides were repeatedly shorting out in the heat, and Autopia was fraught with vapor lock in its gasoline engines and damage caused by careless drivers. My favorite story is the one behind the sinking of the Mark Twain. The story goes that a teenage cast member by the name of Terry O'Brien was given the job of loading guests from the line into the holding pen for the Mark Twain. The boat had not been tested with large numbers of passengers prior to opening, so Terry's supervisor had instructed him to load between 200 and 300 passengers per trip. So with clicker in hand, Terry began loading the Mark Twain with eager guests. To begin with, things went well. 
However, as the day dragged on, the line grew longer and longer, and Terry felt pressure to clear the line as fast as possible. So soon he was paying more attention to the length of the line than the clicker in his hand. At some point in the afternoon, while the Mark Twain was cruising around the opposite side of Tom Sawyer Island, the boat let out its distinctive toot-toot horn to signal distress. The maintenance boat arrived to find the Mark Twain stuck on its tracks, with water flooding part of the tilted deck, causing alarm guests to believe they were sinking. Which, while terrifying to them, is entertained to us who now know the water is only two feet deep. In order to refloat the boat back onto its tracks, staff were forced to offload a number of disgruntled guests into the water to wade back to the banks with shoes in hand. This group of angry guests were there to greet Mark Twain when it eventually arrived back at dock. Shortly after the sinking, Terry's boss asked how many people had been aboard when it derailed. In the heat of the moment, he replied the guests had been around 250. His boss responded, well, better keep it to around 200. After he was gone, Terry remembered to look at the clicker in his pocket and was shocked to discover he had loaded sub-508 people aboard the ill-fated Mark Twain. Back on land, a gas leak closed part of Fantasyland at one point. Apparently a landscaper had inadvertently dug up a quickly installed gas pipe with a backhoe. This led to a gas leak and there were reports of blue flames being seen at the base of Sleeping Beauty's castle near Merlin's magic shop. The inexperienced staff did their best to handle the situation, some going as far as to improvise attractions and park features. In Carl's journal, he comments that in the heat people were desperate to find a cool place to stand, as air conditioning at the time wasn't nearly as powerful as it is today. An employee told them there was an area they could stand and cool off from the air coming off the rides, treating it as though it was an official attraction. Carl suspected they were just desperate to relocate the crowds. On another occasion, they overheard some staff promoting the giant parking lot as an attraction of its own, asking if visitors wanted to take photos of it from various angles, something a number of families were eager to take up with their cameras at the ready. Overall, Disney legend Marty Schuyler describes the opening day as a madhouse. In his words, it was pretty wild. For decades to follow, the day will become known as Black Sunday. With all you've heard in mind, it's not surprising that many thought the park was doomed to fail. However, as we know now, Disney's Dream Park had a way of drawing people in, and within only seven weeks it had seen its millionth guest, which grew to 10 million within just under two and a half years. Carr summarizes his experience in the park pretty well. We were told to expect anything. It was Walt Disney, so we didn't know what he had up his sleeve. It wasn't fun. But I also remember that I wanted to go again. So much had gone wrong, yet there was still something to it. There was still something right there, where everything seemed to go wrong. It's Disney. Maybe you can't explain it. Even with so much going wrong, you wanted to love it. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this peek into the chaos that was Disneyland's opening day. In the next episode, we'll be coming back to July 17th to look at the Dateline Disneyland broadcast, which brought the day's festivities into the homes of 90 million Americans, and which faced its own dramas and achievements. If you want to get more of a visual feel for this history, then pop over to the podcast Tumblr at wonderfulworldsofdisneycast.tumblr.com. There you can find images of the park tickets as well as the insane crowds. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving to the podcast by supporting us on Patreon. You can find the link in our episode description or on the Wonderful Worlds of Disneycast Tumblr. There you can find perks like having a personal message read over the podcast PA system, a personalised monthly postcard, and a monthly Super Secrets prize parcel sent directly to your doorstep. I will also be doing a subscribers-only post-episode podcast called I Think We Got Lost, 
which will be available for anyone who supports for $3 or more a month. The first episode will be uploaded for free on the podcast feed. You can also visit my Redbubble account under WWODC, which features some sweet park-themed designs as well as some fun food. If you can't afford to contribute, not a problem. You can also head over to iTunes and leave us a nice five-star review and some comments, and to share this podcast with your Disney-loving family and friends. As well as the Tumblr, you can also get updates on our Twitter at WWODCast. Again, I'm so happy you could join us for this first journey into the Disney Park histories. And until next time, happy trails, adventurers! I really want to go and I don't care